The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right, let's get to work. Open up your Bibles if you brought them, and I hope you did, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, 1 Samuel 4 is where we're going to spend our time today. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Samuel 4. If you are online with us, there's a Bible tab on the online platform. You can go to 1 Samuel 4. You can Google search 1 Samuel 4. We will be reading from the English Standard Version, but 1 Samuel 4 is where we're going to spend our time um, Hey, I want to tell you about the one and only time thus far that I have been arrested. All right? Uh, If you're new here, you're like, hmm, I already like this place, right? Or you're like, what kind of shady business are they giving a face mic to, right? Like a... Um, uh, so, so let me tell you about this. I've been arrested. Uh, I, when I was, when I was 10 years old, when I was a, a young boy, I was a baseball card collector. Okay. Collected baseball cards. Every single penny of my allowance, uh, would go to the purchase of more cards, more sports cards. I would do extra chores around the house so that I could earn more money to buy more cards to feed. It was like a 10 year old addiction just needed to feed that, that hunger for more baseball cards. Um, so one day, uh, I'm 10, 11 years old. I'm at the store with my mom, uh, and, uh, per usual, or my, my whole family was there per usual. I go straight to the aisle that has the cards, the sports cards. And I, um, browsing, found a pack I was interested in. I picked it up and I brought it to my mom and asked if I could get them. And my mom is wise. And so she said, yeah, do you have any more allowance money left? Which is a dumb question because that stuff burns a hole in my pocket like the day I get it, right? So I was like, no, I'm out of money. And she told me that I could not get the cards because I didn't have any more allowance money. Now, um, I didn't take that too well. If you know me, if you've been around for longer than a week or two, you know this, I'm kind of an idiot, right? Uh, so here's what I did. I, I took that sullen and disheartened, I took that uh, pack of baseball cards back to the card aisle, but instead of placing it back where it was supposed to go, I slid it into my pants. I was wearing, uh, uh, I was wearing sweatpants with a tapered ankle. You know those sweatpants with like the cinched ankle? And so I slipped the pack of uh, baseball cards into my sweatpants, uh, which fell then down into my leg and was conveniently held in place by a small strip of elastic. And then we left the store. Well, upon exiting the store, two men in suits walk up to my family. Uh, and my dad and I are there and, and they asked, they said, sir, could you bring your son and come with us? Uh, and long story short, I was arrested for shoplifting one pack of baseball cards at age 10. Uh, and there were actually some, heft, some pretty hefty consequences to this, um, this malfeasance, okay? Uh, I, I was sentenced, and I actually had to go to court, and I uh, got community service that I had to serve. Uh, but what's more, the, they said you have to do community service, and uh, I had to take what they called a criminal reform class uh, as a 10-year-old. Okay, uh, this, was, this was a day-long class where all the harsh realities about breaking the law were presented to us, okay? Um, now, I was the youngest there by a long margin, okay? Um, and my crime was by far the, the least serious of all the crimes there. I was the smallest crime. Uh, the next smallest crime was Grand Theft Auto, okay? 
Just to put this in perspective. So, uh, and you asked, how do you know that that was the next smallest crime? Well, they asked us to go around the room and share what got us to this place. And so one guy had literally shot out his ex-girlfriend's rear windows of her car with a pistol. And I had to, imagine when that comes to the circle and I'm 10 and I had to say that I got arrested for stealing a pack of baseball cards while wearing tapered ankle sweatpants. I mean, it was wild, but, uh, The reality is, I think the class did the trick uh, because I knew after that class that I would never shoplift again. I haven't done it to this day. I won't do it because, listen, I don't want to go back to that class. Uh, Church, I'm calling this sermon today, Scared Straight. Okay? Scared Straight. Uh, Because today in our text, uh, we're going to be talking about sin, and we're going to talk about the grave effects that sin can cause in our lives. And and I hope that in some good ways today, we might be scared straight. As a kid, I was scared straight in that class and I never wanted to get there again, okay? When I learned walking away from that experience was that there was a way that my life could end up if I continued to follow the path that I was on and I did not want to end up shooting out my girlfriend's windows of her car, okay? So, I saw that very clearly, and today in our text, I think we're going to see the devastating effects that sin can have when it is unchecked. So I hope this serves as something of a warning to us. Uh, Before we jump into the text, let me remind us where we're at in this book, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 4, okay? Eli is the priest and the judge of Israel at this time. Uh, but as we have seen in the first few chapters, uh, this dude is, a, is pretty, a pretty poor and shady leader, okay? Uh, and, and God has reached now his breaking point with Eli. He's, he, he has gotten to the point where the warnings have been issued, uh, the die has been cast, and it's over, okay? Eli's failure to take seriously the commandments of God and obey God's uh, precepts has led to what we saw happen last week in the first half of chapter four, where Israel went to war with the Philistines. Remember that story? We went to the war with the Philistines, and in a great defeat, Israel loses 30,000 foot soldiers. They are killed. The sons of Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. So that's where we are. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he had arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. So let's pause. Uh, It says that a runner is coming back to Shiloh, to the city, after what had happened, after that massacre and slaughter of 30,000 of Israel's foot soldiers. And it says that Eli is sitting there. Now, at this point, Eli is 95 years old, okay? He is sitting there, and he is waiting for the news. But the text, it's interesting, the text says that his heart trembled, that's the language, his heart trembled for the ark of God, As he's sitting there, his heart is trembling. He doesn't know what has happened. We know what has happened. He has no idea. And the question I had as I'm reading this week is, why wasn't he anticipating good news? Why isn't he thinking that the ark is going to assure them victory the way the rest of Israel had thought 
that it would. Remember last week what happened when when the ark comes into the camp of Israel? They pull the ark into the camp and the soldiers of Israel, they shout with great joy. They exalt the Lord because they think it's a sure thing. We got this one in the bag. We got the ark now. So what did Eli know that the rest of Israel did not know? Number one, why didn't he tell them about it? Number two, and why was he trembling at this point now with anxiety as he's waiting to hear about the ark? Well, Eli knew the prophecy that had been given to him from a man of God back from chapter two. If you remember this, the prophecy from the man of God assured him that because of the sins of his sons of Hophni and Phinehas and his unwillingness to deal with their sins, that both sons, this is the prophecy, both sons will die on the same day and your line will be cut off forever. So he already knew that. Eli knew that. And then this was further confirmed in chapter three when Samuel receives a word from the Lord and he gives that same message straight to Eli. So Eli knows these prophecies. The rest of Israel, we assume, does not know these prophecies. But but this, I think, is why Eli is sitting there and he is trembling, waiting to hear what happened in the battle. And, and, and let me pause here and make my first point about sin. What we're seeing here is the slavery of sin. The slavery of sin. You see, Eli knows what he's done. He knows. He knows that he has not followed the Lord faithfully. He knows that he is not, he has not handled his son's sin issues well. Like he knows that he is going to be judged. And now the knowledge of his sin has enslaved him. His heart is trembling because he knows. Hear me, the hearts of sinful people are always uneasy in times of stress. Always. Because their conscience testifies to their guilt. As a 10-year-old, I knew when those two guys walked up in suits, I knew at that very moment what was going on. No one else in my family knew, but I knew because I felt the pack of cards at my ankle. I knew. I felt it in the gut of my stomach. Uh, John Calvin famously said this. He said, he who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustling of a falling leaf. We know this to be true, okay? Uh, Let's use this as an example. Uh, When you're driving, okay? When you are out driving and you're driving too fast, too fast, okay? I'll let you be above the speed limit. Not that any of you would ever do this, okay? But just imagine with me for a moment, okay? That you're out and you're driving too fast. Now, uh, what are you always on the look for? Right? You're, you're, You're scanning for, for cops, right? That's what you're looking for. You're looking for cops. And, and if you see a police cruiser around the next bend, what do you do? You hit the brakes, right? You slow yourself down and you try to act casual, you know, as you, you pass him by, just praying that you don't see him pull out with his lights on in your rearview mirror, right? You know that feeling when you see that cop and you slow yourself down. Listen, if you're not speeding, you never feel that. You see a cop, you're just like, eh. Kevin, hey, right? Like, that's what you see. Maybe it's not that. Okay, that, um, maybe you got something shady going on 
on your phone. Maybe it's a text message from somebody. Maybe it's a website that you've browsed. Maybe it's that history on your phone. You're going to be overly protective of that thing. Right? No one's going to be allowed to use it but you. You're going to be quickly hiding it when someone comes looking over your shoulder. When your spouse comes in the room, you quickly change apps. Just always a bit on edge. Sin causes us to be just a bit paranoid. Right? We fear being found out. Always afraid, always just waiting for the other shoe to drop. It doesn't matter what the sin is. You're trying, you just, you've got this trembling. And, 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 and think about it. For, I mean, isn't, isn't this just an exhausting exercise? Isn't hiding sin exhausting? Like think of the energy expended at trying to hide those things or look for that cop or clear your search history. Just the energy, the exhaustion of trying to hide your sin, trying to keep up your appearances, trying to stay ahead of the lies of the sin that you're in. Church, from this passage, I hope that we might be scared straight and find freedom from the slavery of our sin. You don't, maybe don't feel like it, but you are enslaved to your sin. The Bible uses the language of slavery, of bondage, of freedom. There's more in this, this, this passage. You feeling like this is going to be a fun sermon? You enjoying this so far? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 14. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then that man, the runner, he hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98. I'm sorry, I said 95, 98, the Bible. See, I told you I'd lie to you, so you should read the text, okay? Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news, the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. And thus ends the time of Eli as the priest and the judge of Israel. Now, um, the, the part that kind of struck me as fascinating in those verses is that Eli seems almost uncaring about the first piece, two pieces of news that he hears. Right, the first two, like that Israel had been greatly defeated, losing 30,000 soldiers, and that both of his sons had died. He's almost flippant about those things. Is that bizarre? Like, that struck me as strange. Does this guy not have a soul? Like, 30,000 plus two, and those two are kind of a big deal to him. What's going on here? Again, you got to remember where we're at in the text, okay? Back in chapter three, if you remember, there's evidence that, that Eli had kind of resolved himself to his demise. Like he'd kind of 
I, I think, got it. Like the, the, the fall of him himself, the fall of his house. And, and so like when Samuel gives him the message of judgment that the Lord revealed to him that first day from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, verse 18, this is what Eli said as soon as he hears the news. This is after he heard the first prophecy in chapter 2 and what he hears from the Lord in chapter 3 through Samuel. He says this, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Which that was weird back in chapter 3. But it does explain that I think Eli has kind of come to terms with the fact that his family is out of the will, as it were. Like that it was just gonna happen. But then it's again bizarre that Eli freaks out when he hears about the ark of the Lord being captured. It says he falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. It's like he never seemed to imagine the far-reaching effects nationally that his sin would have. Like Israel has now lost the ark and he tumbles over and dies. After judging Israel for 40 years, his legacy is utterly destroyed in this moment. Question, how did things get this bad in his life? How did, how did he get to this place, to this point? Well, I mean, honestly, we, we really don't know. I mean, legitimately, we, we, have, we, we don't have any record of his early years. So we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, but there must have been something. I mean, first of all, he must have done something good in his life to be appointed high priest and judge. So he must have had some sort of clout or some sort of experience that was good. But, but as to his downfall, we have to kind of leave it up to conjecture a bit. But maybe it's, maybe it's the loss of his wife. We know he had a wife, he had sons, but we never hear mention of her. Maybe it was that that, that changed him. Perhaps he overemphasized his work. I mean, he's a busy guy. He's the priest. He's the judge. Maybe he overemphasized his work and subs- subsequently neglected raising and training up his children as many men in our culture do. Work, work, work. Maybe that was his motto. Perhaps he was actually the one who modeled the sins of gluttony to his sons. Maybe it wasn't just their sin. Maybe it was his sin that they were just following in his, their daddy's uh, footsteps. That might explain what it said in the text about his obesity. I mean, that's a weird little thing for them to throw in there that he broke his neck, he died, and he was heavy. I don't think those are throwaway words. Perhaps this shows that, that he too was the starter of his family's sin. Like we don't know. We don't, just so you know, we don't know. But on the other hand, we do know. Like we don't know, but we do know. And it's my second point about sin. We're seeing here the slope of sin. The slavery of sin, yes, but now the slope of sin. Eli's disgrace and fall would have happened the same way that it always happens. One step at a time. One decision at a time. One compromise at a time. One sin at a time. The slope of sin always leads downhill. Galatians 6, which was read over us this morning, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul is saying, first we sow and then we reap. And the slope of sin, the, if you sow sin in your life, you will always reap corruption. Uh, to, to quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, a famous author, this is what Ralph Waldo Emerson says. You sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. And sow a character and you, you reap a destiny. See, we are getting a picture here of this downward slope of sin. It starts with a small disobedience and then it just goes down, down, down until it ends in utter spiritual disaster. I just, it feels good, I know. I'm feeling, it's okay. Um, It never starts there though. You never start 98 with your heart trembling hoping that you don't hear news of 30,002 and the ark being taken. It never just starts there. Okay, like no one just wakes up on a random Tuesday morning. Just like random Tuesday, you wake up and just be like, you know what I think I'm gonna do today? Ruin my life. It's Tuesday, why not, right? Like you just never, it never starts. You know, I'm gonna do something today that's gonna destroy my marriage. It's gonna wreck my kids, right? I'm gonna just, just damage my career. You never just wake up and do that on just Tuesday. It's, it's not how it works. No, a, adulterous relationships at 40 begin with addictions to porn at 20. It does. Eating disorders in your 20s or 30s begin with jealousies not dealt with when you were in school, in high school, in middle school. Okay, an impenetrable and rebellious heart at 50 or at 60 begins with resisting God-given authority much earlier in life. It always starts small, but the slope is slippery. It starts as a pack of baseball cards while wearing tapered angle sweatpants, but it almost never ends there unless you're scared straight. Oh, beware the slippery downward slope of sin. I said it to you before, but if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. Those are different places for each one of us, but you know where that is for you. Well, okay, the story concludes with another disturbing and distressing anecdote from Eli's family. It does not get good. Let's finish this text, verse 19. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant about to give birth. When she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, don't be afraid, you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So at the very end of the chapter, a new character emerges in our story. She shows up right at the end of this tragedy. 
Uh, her name is not even given to us. She is only known as Eli's daughter-in-law, uh, Phineas's wife. She's back in Shiloh and we find out she's pregnant. And, and then upon hearing the news of the ark and of the death of all of the men in her life, in that distress, she prematurely goes into labor uh, and the women around her, they're, they're even trying to console her right, with what culturally would have been the most consoling thing to give her. It's, you, you've born a son. But she dies nonetheless. She wouldn't hear it. She couldn't hear it. And it's the final point that I want to make about sin this morning, and that's the spread of sin. It's the slavery of sin. It's the slope of sin, but it's the spread of sin. See, this woman, even if she had pulled through and, and lived after this birth, uh, she would have been in dire straits. Her life never would have been, quote, good, okay? All of the men in her life, her, her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, they're all dead in one day. And her newborn son now, even, even if he lives, even if she lives, he will be raised without any male family to kind of raise him up, to train him up, to apprentice him. And even now, okay, the, this woman who seems to actually see the reality of what's happened, she seems to be the only one in the story who sees the true reality of what's happened. She knows that it's more than just a box that was lost in this skirmish. Because, and we know this because she names her son Ichabod, okay, which means that, that name means no glory. See, she realizes that sometimes God must depart from us in order that we might seek him rightly. And so she says, the glory of the Lord has left. It's been taken. There is no glory. Ichabod. I mean, don't you see the spread of the sin here? Eli's sin spread, I think, to his sons. His son's sin then spread to all of Israel, and now it has even spread to their wives and children and grandchildren, generations. Church, how little we imagine the spread of our sin. If only we had eyes to see it. One of the most insidious things about sin is that it is never a one-time event. It's never done in isolation. There's no such thing as an innocent sin. There's no such thing as, well, I'm not really hurting anyone. Don't you see here the spread of sin? Often I'll, when I counsel uh, people who are wrestling or struggling with some sort of sin, I like to do this exercise where I, I ask them to, to kind of play a game uh, with me and I, and I call it what's next. And I just ask them to start playing out the scenario to its conclusion. Okay, so, so it'll be like, oh, you, so you, you want to file for divorce. Okay, whether it's right or wrong, whether there's justified or unjustified reasons, you want to file for divorce? Okay, what's next? Well, a long legal battle. Okay, what's next? Well, maybe when that's done, you just are free. Yeah, but what's next after that? You go home to an empty house every night after work. What's next? What's next after that? You think you're just going to find that elusive, the one? You'll find, you'll find the one right next to a unicorn and a pot of gold, okay? They ain't out there. It was hard enough to find her in your 20s. Good luck in your 40s. 
What do you think? What's next, okay? What's next for you financially? What's next for your relationship with your kids? What's next for your relationship with your grandkids? How are you going to explain this to them, okay? What's next once that novelty of not being married to that person wears off? What's next? Take any sin you want, any severity level that you might consider, and start playing that game. Think it out to its logical conclusion, and you will start to see the spread of your sin. Have I made my point about this yet? Like, do you feel like I'm hammering it pretty home? Sin is a huge deal. It is a huge deal. The slavery, the slope, and the spread of sin. Church, we need to be scared straight. The problem is we just don't take our sin this seriously. We need to be scared straight. Now, uh, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk about a theological concept that, that comes out in systematic theology about how we deal with our sin as Christians. And that term is mortification. Mortification is a theological term that it's this idea that we must take whatever drastic measures necessary to put sin to death in our lives. That's what mortification means. Now, just real quick, I am not talking about justification here. So let me just be really clear here, okay? A little theology here. Justification is what happens when you are converted. Okay, justification is when you become a Christian or when you get saved or or when you convert to the faith, okay? This is an event. Justification is a one-time event when you respond to the call of God with repentance and faith and receive salvation, receive from God your justification. It's a moment in time when God declares you as a sinner righteous, Okay, he declares you righteous. He restores you to right relationship with himself. That's justification, but I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about mortification, and, and that's what happens after justification. Like after justification, you begin this long process of becoming more like Jesus. Like after you are saved, you start to pursue him, right? You start to, as we say it here, go deeper with him. You grow up, you mature, you start working on things, you repent of your sin, right? You chase after Christ, and as you chase after him, the chains around you start to loosen up. And mortification is a part of this. It's the part where you're putting sin to death in your life. Now, I have used this illustration a number of times. It's the very best illustration that I know about mortification. I stole it from Matt Chandler. He's used it years ago. I think it's the best one. I'll keep using it. Why? Because I need to hear the same illustration over and over again. I think you do too. Have you ever seen one of those Discovery Channel shows where somebody uh, raises bears or like wolves or tigers? Not like Tiger King with like the weird backwoodsness, but like somebody who's just like legit into raising these animals as pets. Have you seen this? These shows? Yeah, like it, they're always called When Animals Attack, right? Okay, so you've seen it. Okay, Marcy and I were watching one of those a few years ago uh, and it showed this guy, told the story of this guy who found a grizzly cub, like a grizzly bear cub. Okay, took him in, bottle fed this grizzly cub and started to raise it as a pet. That's what he did, okay? Uh, now, the bear, uh, he trained the bear. The bear could do tricks. I mean, it was like, wow, this bear is pretty great. 
Okay, named it. I mean, it was awesome. Like this bear is legit. But then one day the story goes, when animals attack, okay? You know where this is going. But one day, okay, during a training session, the guy is in the cage with the bear working. They're filming this, okay? Uh, They're practicing one of their tricks and capturing it all on video when out of nowhere, the bear reaches out, jacks the dude, full on attacks him and kills him. Just kills the guy who raised him since he was a cub. Now, that was some crazy footage. I enjoyed it, okay? Just so you know me. I've already told you I'm crazy, but like, I thought that was interesting footage, okay? Uh, But it gets crazier because the next shot, they cross pan to the crazier thing in that, which is an interview with some of his friends and like family members. And they're just like shocked. They are shocked that the bear would kill this man. And they're saying things like that bear loved him. The bear loved him. I can't imagine why Bart would do something like this. He was such a sweet bear. Bart loved him. He was his best friend. And I'm screaming at the TV like, are you kidding me? I know why he killed him. Because he's a bear. He's a 1,000 pound apex predator. Okay, it's built in his DNA to kill prey. And by the way, you get in that cage with him, you're the prey. You are the prey. Just because you give him a human name and you, you call him Bart the Bear, it doesn't make him safe. It doesn't make him cuddly. He's a, he is an apex predator who is ingrained in him to eat your face. That's what he's thinking when you're throwing him bacon bits, okay? But church, all too often, this is how we treat our sin. All too often we treat our sin like it's a pet. And we let it come into our lives when it, it seems small and, and innocent and, and inconsequential and, and cuddly and sometimes even a little cute. But it will grow. And it will eventually turn into the apex predator that it is. And one day, just like Eli's life, It'll attack you and it'll take you down. Like don't pretend that that sin isn't a big deal because it is. Now what mortification is, is it's taking that bear out into the street, not to train it, not to cuddle it, not to give it a name and to keep it as a pet, but rather you take that sin and you drag it out into the street and you put two bullets in the back of its head. Turn that thing 90 degrees and do it gangster style, okay? Two in the back of the head. Don't give your sin a chance to kill you. You need to put it down. You need to mortify it. So Fathom, like I think, I'm hoping that there might be some work that we need to do that, that you might need to do today. Like with the Lord, okay? Like, and I'm not saying that all you got a big apex predator on your back, but I'm saying you, you might. But you might just have a little cuddly cub at home that you need to actually take outside and murder. Don't actually, you know what I'm saying, okay? It's a metaphor. But, but you might have some work to do. Maybe Maybe this is stirring up in you. Like maybe you feel that, that trembling that Eli felt. Maybe you can, you can feel that. You can feel the slavery of, of your sins setting in, this, this deep-seated fear of getting caught. 
Or maybe you're just starting to see the slope of your sin and and you know that it was a little bit more innocent a few years ago, but now it's just starting to feel like you're, you're slipping into places you don't want to be going. Or, or maybe you're even starting to notice the spread of your sin the moment you start seeing that showing up in your kids, in your family, to those around you. The, the Bible calls us to repent, to turn from our sin, to mortify our flesh, There might be some apex predators that you've been cuddling up with for way too long. And today, God's call to you is to take that sin out in the street and put two in the back of its head to kill it. You can start that journey today. Whether you are saved or you're not saved, whether you've been a Christian for a minute or for decades, you can mortify your flesh. Here's how you start. You confess your sin to God and you repent of that sin and talk to someone else about it. You don't shoot it in the closet. You drag it out where everyone can see it and you put it to death. You got to get it in out of the dark, okay? Um, talk to me about it. I won't out you. Just talk to me. Talk to somebody that you trust about it. Maybe even you need a counselor that you pay. Go talk to somebody, but do it. Take that step to put that sin to death. Shoot that thing. You need to be scared straight. I need to be scared straight with every little pet sin. I set before you life and death. I set before you blessing and curse. The choice then is yours. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we do bless you today for this story. If nothing more than, than the warning that it presents to us and, and I think the hope that it can present to us, because while we see the demise of of Eli and his whole family, Lord, we can learn from this that there is a way that that leads not to death, but to life. There's a, a way that leads more to blessing than to cursing, but it requires repentance. It requires taking our sins seriously. It requires sometimes taking very hard and very drastic measures to put those things that are clinging to us to death. God, I do pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the real preacher here at Fathom Church, that the Holy Spirit would be working on hearts, that there would be sins that have been revealed, that you would even right now, that there would be confession happening, that Father, people would be saying, God, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this bear anymore. I don't want this thing over my back anymore. I don't want to be scared and enslaved and watching this affect everything in my life. I don't want this anymore. I want to be done with this. I want to put it to death. And I do pray, Father, that through the power of your Spirit, you would embolden us to take the necessary steps to do that. Lord, that we would be metaphorically and maybe even literally dragging some things out of our lives and getting rid of them. So Lord, thank you for the conviction from your word. I pray we would heed it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.